Welcome to Apologetics with Brian O'Connell, where in each episode, I answer difficult questions that confront Christianity. Over the past several episodes, we've been looking at Christianity and world religions. In comparing the many contradictory beliefs of these religions, we were able to conclude that all religions may be false, but they cannot all be true. We saw that the law of non-contradiction tells us that two opposing beliefs, ideas, and statements cannot both be true at the same time. Therefore, the claim that all religions are serving the same God is false. Over these past two episodes, we have also seen that the difference between Christianity and all other world religions is that no other founder of a major world religion claimed to be God. Not only that, but we saw that Jesus rose from the dead, proving to be who he said he was. In these episodes, I used a lot of passages of scripture to prove my point. Because of this, you might be listening to these episodes and saying to yourself, Okay, Brian, you used scripture to prove your point, but I don't trust the Bible. Or, you may be asking yourself how we got the Bible to begin with. It's these questions and objections that I want to address in this episode. So, why was the Bible written? Well, the simple answer to this question is that God commanded it. For example, Exodus chapter 34 verse 27 says the following, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write down these words, For in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Another example comes from Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 2, where it says, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Write in a book all the words I have spoken to you. And there are numerous other examples like these throughout the Bible. So we've seen why it was written, but who wrote it, and what were their qualifications? The Bible was actually written by 40 different authors from different walks of life which I will address more in an upcoming episode. God gave us the Bible through these 40 different authors through a process called inspiration. Here's an explanation of what inspiration is, and it comes from the website Got Questions. The article I'm quoting is titled, Who Wrote the Bible? And it says the following, The doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture essentially teaches that God superintended the human authors of the Bible so that their individual styles were preserved, but the end result was precisely what God wanted. When Matthew, for example, sat down to write an account of Jesus' ministry, he relied on his memory with the help of the Holy Spirit. As you know, Matthew was an eyewitness to the events he recorded. And when Matthew wrote, he kept his intended readership in mind. For example, Matthew wrote for a Jewish audience. The result was the Gospel of Matthew, which was a narrative full of Matthew's vocabulary, Matthew's grammar, Matthew's syntax, and Matthew's style. Yet, it was the words of God. The Spirit so guided Matthew's writing that everything God wanted to say was said, and nothing was included that God did not intend to say. Peter describes the process of inspiration this way. Prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In 2 Peter 1, verse 21. We've seen from this article what inspiration is, but we still don't know much about who these authors are or what their qualifications were. 
So how did the Jews and early Christians recognize if books were divinely inspired? Well, the Jews and early Christians didn't accept just any book as being from God. There were guiding principles that were used to determine divine inspiration. For example, the Jews in early Christian church would ask if the book was written by a prophet, apostle, or other person of God that had been divinely appointed. And there were standards here too. As you know, anyone can walk around and claim to be a prophet of God. However, God gives his standard for his prophets in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 22 where he tells us that the mark of a true prophet of God is that all prophecies come true. And the mark of a false prophet is that prophecies don't come true, even if it's just one failed prophecy. Another factor was whether or not the writer was confirmed by acts of God. For example, Moses parted the Red Sea and brought water out of a rock. Elijah called down fire Peter healed a lame man, raised Tabitha from the dead, and cursed Ananias and Sapphira, who both collapsed and died instantly. And Paul brought Eutychus back to life, shook off a viper, and healed many people. Another qualification was that the person had a clear authority that was recognized by the people of God. Examples include Joshua and Paul, as well as Mark, who was Peter's secretary, Luke, who was a physician and historian who recorded a historical account of the ministry of Jesus as recorded in Luke's own gospel. There are numerous examples throughout the New Testament of Luke and Mark being described as fellow workers working alongside Paul. For example, Colossians chapter 4 verse 10, Colossians chapter 4 verse 14, 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 13, 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 11, in Philemon chapter 1, verse 24. Another obvious factor was whether or not the book told the truth about God as well as if the book reflects and comes with the power of God. In other words, does the book have the power to transform lives? Another determining factor was whether or not the book was accepted by the people of God. When a book was received, collected, read, and used by the people of God as the Word of God, it was regarded as being canonical. The book had a clear authority that was recognized by God's people. We see examples of this in the Bible. For example, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, Peter refers to Paul's writings as being Scripture. Besides this verse, there are numerous other examples of where the author of a New Testament book makes it clear that the letters being circulated around the different church, which we now refer to as the New Testament, they refer to these letters as being scripture, just like the Old Testament books. An example of this is seen in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, where Peter writes the following, "...and count the patience of our Lord as salvation." just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. 
What's funny about this verse is that here, Peter is confessing that some of the things Paul writes is hard to understand, which I think we can all relate to. However, besides this, listen to what Peter is saying. He says that there are people who twist Paul's writings as they do the other scriptures. Here, Peter is claiming that Paul's writings are scripture. Another clear example comes from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, where it says, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. What's significant here is that this verse is quoting two different passages. The first part of the verse, where it says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. The second part of 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18 says that the laborer deserves his wages, which comes from Luke chapter 10, verse 7. The significance here is that Paul begins 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18 by stating that the scripture says. So when Paul is quoting both Old Testament and New Testament passages together like this, and he says the scripture says, He's clearly expressing that he views the New Testament writings as being scripture. In their book, Heresy of Orthodoxy, biblical scholars Andreas Kosenberger and Michael Kruger explain the significance of Paul's statement in 1 Timothy 5, verse 18. When Paul combines an Old and New Testament passage, they explain that he's introducing what is known as the double citation with the introductory formula, Scripture says making it clear that both citations bear the same authoritative scriptural status. So it's clear from what I've just shared that these New Testament authors viewed the writings of the New Testament as being scripture, just like the Old Testament books. But this brings up another question. Why were these books collected and preserved? The obvious answer to this is that they were collected and preserved because these books were seen to have come directly from God and therefore were authoritative. We see examples of this in Scripture. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, And we impart this wisdom in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Holy Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. This verse is showing that even though it was Paul writing, he understood that it was not him, but the Spirit of God that is truly doing the teaching and imparting the wisdom. Another verse that shows this same view of Scripture is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 2, which says, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. This is another verse which clearly shows that these New Testament writers understood that the instructions which they were giving to the church were not originating from them, but were in fact the words of the Lord Jesus. Paul Wigner points out in his book, The Journey from Text to Translations, that the books that were later placed into the Old Testament canon were of a self-authenticating nature and did not derive their authority from a person or ecclesiastical decree. This point is crucial. The books did not receive their authority because they were placed into the canon. Rather, they were recognized by the nation of Israel as having divine authority and were therefore 
included in the canon. Another argument that I've heard is that there were books that were removed because the church didn't like them. So does this claim have any truth to it? The answer is no. There were never books that were removed from the Bible. However, there were books that were rejected because they were not seen as being canonical. So what about the books that are included in the Catholic Bible that are not included in the Protestant Bible? What's the reason for this? The books that the Catholics include in their Bible that Protestants don't use are Tobit, Judith, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, Wisdom, Sirach, and Baruch. Paul Wagner points out that the reason these books were rejected by the Protestant Church is that none of these apocryphal books claim to be from God, whereas most of the Old Testament books do. Of those books in the Old Testament that do not claim to be from God, God's presence throughout the book is clearly seen. An example of such a book is the book of Esther, where God is never mentioned in the entire book. However, God's sovereignty and his presence is clearly recognized, which is why Esther was included in the Old Testament canon. Another reason why the apocryphal books were rejected was that they were never seen as being authoritative and did not contain the clear divine stamp that they were from God. This is why these books were never included by the Jews or the early church into the canon. Now, although these books are not accepted as being scripture, they were still seen as having some religious value. Similar to Christians today using commentaries or other resources by various Christian thinkers like Calvin, Luther, Edwards, or others, the writings from these men can be beneficial to the church, but in no way are the writings from these men to be viewed as being on par with the Word of God. So why else were these books rejected? Another reason for the rejection of these books is that they were never mentioned in the New Testament. In fact, in Matthew chapter 23, verses 34 to 35, and Luke chapter 11, verses 49 to 51, Jesus describes the extent of the Old Testament and does not include the apocryphal books. In both of these passages, Jesus condemned the Jews for their unfaithfulness. More than that, he tells them that they will be judged for the blood of all of the prophets, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. In other words, from A to Z. If you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament, the death of Abel takes place in Genesis, which is the first book of the Old Testament, and the death of Zechariah is found in 2 Chronicles. If you're following along, you may be thinking, okay, Brian, how do you say that Jesus is giving the full extent of the Old Testament by saying Abel to Zechariah, especially when Abel is in Genesis and Zechariah is in 2 Chronicles? The reason you may be asking this is because in the English Bible, 2 Chronicles is the 14th book out of 39 Old Testament books, ending with the Old Testament book Malachi. As a result, this doesn't seem to imply a totality of Old Testament prophets. However, what's interesting is that the Jewish scriptures have the same books as the English translation, but they order the books differently. In fact, the first book in the Jewish Bible is Genesis, just like the English version. However, the last book of the Jewish scripture is 2 Chronicles, 
not Malachi. Another interesting thing to note is that these apocryphal books were around during the time of Jesus' ministry. If you're unfamiliar with these apocryphal books, they record a period of time called the Intertestamental Period, or the Silent Years. It was a 400-year period of time in which the Jews recognized that God had not sent his prophets. As I just mentioned, these books were around during the time of Jesus' ministry. So if he thought of these books as scripture, he would have said something like, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Judas, son of Mattathias. But he doesn't. He excludes these books from his statement, showing that these books were not considered to be scripture. Again, Jesus is providing us with bookends. In other words, when Jesus says from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, he is saying that the Jews will be held responsible for the blood of all of the Old Testament prophets from A to Z. Something else that I think is important to note is that these books were not always seen as being canonical or scripture by the Catholic Church. In fact, Wegner explains that during the Council of Trent, Martin Luther argued against the canonicity of the book of Maccabees, citing the New Testament, early church fathers, and Jewish teachers in support. The Roman Catholic Church responded by canonizing the Apocrypha. So, we've just looked at the Old Testament books. How about the New Testament? Were any of these books rejected? If you're an adult, you've probably heard people claim that there are other Gospels that were removed by the Church in order to have the Bible say what the Church wanted it to say. Books such as Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code popularized these erroneous claims. Each year, typically around Christmas or Resurrection Sunday, popularly known as Easter, articles appear in newspapers and magazines claiming that other Gospels exist. Different New Testament Gospels that you may encounter through these various media outlets include the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, as well as several others. Although these books exist, these books are not canonical. There were absolutely zero inspired books in the New Testament that were removed, and there were never any books that were added and then removed by the church due to the church not liking what those books say. However, similar to the Old Testament, there were books that were rejected. The reason these books were rejected was because these books didn't meet the principles that we discussed earlier in this episode that were used to determine a book's canonicity. If you read or study any of these books, it's clear that these books were not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Also, other factors that made for the obvious rejection of these books were that these books were not written by an apostle or have a close connection with an apostle. These books were never accepted by the body of Christ. I should note that this had nothing to do with whether or not the church liked the message being presented. In fact, if you've ever read the Bible, you've seen that there's often a message that presents the church in a negative light. People are in sin and are in need of repentance. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is constantly shown to be disobeying God and turning to idol worship. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, God referred to his people as being stiff-necked. That being said, the argument that the church edited the Bible and removed books that they didn't like 
is a completely fallacious and illogical argument. Now, going back to why these books were rejected. These books did not contain consistency of doctrine and orthodox teaching. These books did not bear evidence of high moral and spiritual values that would reflect a work of the Holy Spirit. And lastly, these books were not accepted by the early church because they were known to be fake. An example of this is the Gospel of Thomas. When one studies the Gospel of Thomas, they see that this so-called gospel fails at all of these tests that I just mentioned. The Gospel of Thomas was not written by Jesus' disciple Thomas. In fact, the early Christian leaders universally recognized the Gospel of Thomas as a forgery. Because this Gospel was known to be forgery, the Gospel of Thomas was rejected by the vast majority of early Christians. Not only that, but the Gospel of Thomas contains many teachings that are in contradiction to the Biblical Gospels and the rest of the New Testament. And lastly, the Gospel of Thomas does not bear the marks of the work of inspiration by the Holy Spirit. We know from our own life experiences that just because something claims to be news does not make it news. For example, several years ago when I was doing research in preparation for teaching this lesson before an audience, I came across several newspaper clippings that were clearly fake, which I used for my presentation. These included the November 1992 edition of Weekly World News, which stated that an alien tells Clinton and Bush five U.S. senators are space aliens. Other articles included titles such as Space Alien Backs Bush for President, or Hillary Clinton Adopts Alien Baby, or lastly, Obama Appoints Martian Ambassador. Just as we can read or hear these news article headlines and know that they are fake, we can use the same knowledge and apply it to the Bible. Just because something claims to be scripture does not make it scripture. These apocryphal books were the weekly world news examples that I just gave you. These apocryphal books were the national inquirer of the New Testament. They claimed to be written by the apostles or other New Testament figures like Mary or Judas. However, they were written long after their deaths. Not only that, but these books contained a writing style that clearly pointed to a later date. What I mean by this is that these books contained Gnostic beliefs that didn't exist until a much later date. In fact, New Testament scholar Dr. Michael Lacona explains in his book The Resurrection of Jesus that the original Gospel of Judas was probably written about the middle of the second century, since Irenaeus reported that it was written by a group called the Cainites who made heroes out of biblical villains such as Esau, Korah, the Sodomites, and Judas. Lacona goes on to say that there seems to be wide agreement that the Gospel of Judas is a mid-2nd century text, and there is no reason for believing that its content reflects apostolic tradition. Although there are people that claim that these Gospels should be in the Bible, it's clear from reading them that they were rightly rejected. For example, in the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, we read the following. We read that Jesus killed the son of Annas because he drained the water from a pond that Jesus had been collecting. Not only that, but this gospel says 
that Jesus killed another boy for bumping into him and that Jesus blinded people for harassing him. There is also an account of Jesus threatening Joseph and telling Joseph that he had better not make him angry. From these accounts, Jesus sounds more like the Incredible Hulk from the Marvel movies than the Jesus of the Gospels. It was clear to the early church that these so-called Gospels were the weekly world news or the National Enquirer of the New Testament. They were clearly fake and therefore were rejected and never accepted as being canonical. In fact, Everett Harrison in his book, Introduction to the New Testament, writes, The student is able to compare this literature with the acknowledged books of the New Testament. If he has misgivings about the formation of the canon, feeling that perhaps the endorsement of the books was somewhat arbitrary, it is morally certain that he will be won to a position of complete confidence in the superiority of the New Testament books on the basis of comparison. As I end this episode, I want to remind you of something that I think is very important, and that is that the Christian church did not canonize any book. Canonization was determined by God. The church simply recognized which books were from God, and they did so by using the determining factors that were mentioned earlier in this episode. Each of the 66 books that are in the Christian Bible have a clear stamp of God on them, as well as the witness of the Holy Spirit. These 66 different books have been transforming lives by the power of the Holy Spirit for over two millennia. It's because of this that we can, with confidence, echo the words of Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16-17, to where he writes that all Scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. That's all the time that we have for today. Come back next time as we look at what makes the Christian Bible unique from other religious texts. God bless.